Dear Dawn, so sis, let me continue in these unfolding narratives of my life that have never been revealed. I walked for years and years alone. As for childhood friends, they interviewed guys who raped me when I was a teen. That is why the boy cried when he heard it was I who accused of the murders and stated, quote, we all treated her so bad, end quote. Yeah, I guess you did, didn't you, asshole? God has it all recorded. I remember once counting how many times I crossed country, counting up a big seven that year. I was in love with the sights I was seeing and the socializing of so many different minds I'd pass up with. It all kept me thrilled, and this is why I carried on thumbing around as I did. In my teen, beginning around 13, Carl Maddox seduced me first into sexual activity, and from there I began to explore it with others. But there were also moments of unwillingness of where you could very well call coerced sex. The areas of sexual encounters I assuredly can constituted as rape, but shoved these events into a closet of my own, unknown to anyone. I was entrapped on so many occasions by Clausen, Royal Oak, Utica, Rochester, Sterling Heights, and some Troy boys in this ordeal to face. Around 13 to 14, I was gang raped twice. Looking back, I can only see that I was because I hung out with the guys. But that does not mean I was asking for it. Normally, we were partying, getting drunk, stoned, or both when this would happen. Finding a boyfriend from Royal Oak, Bobby Rowland, I then thought with him by my side would protect me from any further such events like rape. But I was wrong. The gang rapes were both during the time I was with Bobby's parties outside of Detroit. So needless to say, I was now very experienced in the field of sexual assaults. This is why I feel a new nationwide law for women of self-defense should highly be considered and every woman, even adolescents, should learn self-defense. Also carrying guns and knowing how to use them when reaching a certain age, like 21. For now, love, Aileen. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we continue digging into the early life of the women who brought women serial killers into the spotlight, Miss Aileen Warnos. Life handed her a deck of cards stacked against her, and she fought back twice as hard, trying to make a life that no one could take away from her. Men seem to have let her down time and time again. The beginning, the ones to really show her how disposable she was. In a quest for love, Aileen decided to start murdering men who wronged her. She was going to support Tyria, doing the only thing she knew how to do, sex work. Soon, killing men turned to righting each wrong that came her way by men from the past. Meeting Tyria changed Aileen's life, but not for the better. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder, sexual abuse, alcohol abuse, and adult language. Listeners, discretion is advised. If any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you.
Good evening, my true crime nerds. Hope everyone enjoyed the premiere of the Aileen Warnos case last week when you all had a hand in picking last season. We will see another poll going live on TTCL Patreon page for the upcoming season five and second anniversary of TTCL. With a huge announcement, next season TTCL will hop the pond and cover cases outside of the U.S. for the entire fall slash winter season. That doesn't mean that I won't cover those after that, but I thought there would be no better way to introduce national cases to the lineup than offering up a season containing some of the most high-profile cases to date. So if you're on Patreon, keep an eye out for that. Don't forget to show the show a little love by reviewing, recommending TTCL to other nerds like yourself. This is a great and free way to support the show so that it can continue to grow, bringing you even better episodes and guaranteeing that the librarian will be here to cover the cases you've all been dying to hear. Patreon is live with a couple bonus episodes already live, not to mention that you get to hear the show completely commercial free. Go take a look and see if any of the tiers are what fits your needs when it comes to the show. Enough of this. Let's get to what you all came here for, the true crime. Last week, I introduced you all to Aileen Carol Pittman Warnos. Uh, she was taught very early on that no one wanted her. Her mother abandoned her, leaving her maternal grandparents to adopt and raise her and her brother Keith like they were their own. Yet, Lori treated Lee even worse than showing she was unwanted. He, he showed her that sex was all she was good for. Aileen started having sex at a very young 11 years old and from there on out sex was nothing more than a chore that needed to get done. It would later be her sole means of surviving and earning an income. But a trail of bad decisions led Lee her, to her first stint inside the Florida correctional system, all building up to Lee meeting the one person capable of meaning so much that Lee would do anything to keep her in her life. So in 1986, Aileen walks into a down in Daytona Beach called Zodiac. It was known as a gay woman's bar and Aileen's rough 30 years to the very young 24-year-old Tyria, it didn't matter because it didn't stand in the way of these two falling fast and hard from one another. Many say it was almost love at first sight for the two. Tyria was in Day Daytona Beach instead of her hometown back in Ohio because it made her coming out as gay difficult when she lived in a community where everybody knew everything about everyone. And gossip was all they had to do about those who didn't live the way according to their interpretation of the Bible. Tyria being gay, she knew she wouldn't be accepted by a community she grew up with, so she took off to find somewhere that she could be herself without so much backlash. With a payout that came from a car crash she endured in her hometown in Ohio, Tyria took that to a very sunny Florida where no matter your age, your gender, or your sexual orientation, you had a community to support you. In 1984, Tyria became a born-again Christian with the Baptist community. And while she agreed with her congregation on much of the interpretation of the Bible, the one thing she didn't give up was her sexual orientation. To her and many others today, God wasn't going to smite her just because she had chose to love a woman. She believed that she was made in his eye, and if that was the case, then he, why would he let her be capable of loving another person of the same sex? 
Unfortunately, this is still a great debate within the Christian community today, but it's not one for TTCL. I I support you all, but please don't come at me because your belief system says otherwise than what I was just talking about. It's a zero tolerance for me. Love is happiness, and it's not our duty to strip someone of that no matter what. In June of 1986, Tyria was living with a friend and her husband, Cami Green, both very straight-laced. They were that kind of couple that welcomed neighbors to the neighborhood by bringing over cupcakes or cookies, and they held a barbecue every Sunday. They were just extremely down-to-earth suburban couple. Cami and Tyria were good friends, or, quote, at least until... We met Aileen, end quote, Cammie says about when Aileen walked into Tyria's life. Aileen told Tyria about her cleaning business that she ran out of Orlando. But if you remember back to last week, this was a business adventure between her and her first lesbian lover, Tony. The two were going to start this business, but Lee claims that, you know, just four months into running the business, Tony cleaned her out, taking all of the equipment and everything. So even though that was completely over, Aileen used this as a front to tell people that's what she did. That's what she did for a living. So to hide that she was truly a sex worker. At the same time that Tyria meets Lee, she is working as a laundry maid at El Caribia Motel. And it wasn't long before Green, the Greens asked both Tyree and Aileen to leave their home because Aileen's attitude and outlook made it hard for the Greens to live a very kind of stress-free or drama-free lifestyle. They were very quiet people. According to Cami, Aileen came home one night after working. She often left with a briefcase, but Cami was suspicious of what the case actually enclosed. It seems as though Cami wasn't as gullible as Tyria, but little did Cami know that Tyria had already learned about Lee's actual occupation, and she chose not to divulge that information to the Greens. She found Lee being a sex worker kind of exciting. Nonetheless, that night, Lee comes home. She has a black eye. And according to her, she's been raped repeatedly for the last six hours by a man. It's around this time that Kame's curiosity got the best of her. And when Ty and Lee were gone from the home, she opened up Lee's briefcase to see it loaded down with condoms and men's business cards. Cammy worried about Ty, and the next chance she got, she told her what she had found. But Ty already knew Lee's true occupation. This was the final straw for the Greens, and once Ty left with Lee, the friendship between the two women fell apart. They were on very different paths in life. Cammy could see that walking with Lee meant that Ty's choices were going to come back and haunt her one day. Well, Lee needed to make sure that she appreciated the Greens and their hospitality. So as a token of gratitude, she stole Cammie's driver's license and other identification so that when she needed, she'd have Cammie Green as one of her many aliases. We know that the past of Aileen and for love, for her, love and sex didn't belong in the same category. Her way of expressing how much she loved Ty was by giving sex work all that she had so that Ty never had to worry about anything. And it's around this time that Tyree lost her job as the clean, as a laundry maid at the motel. But the problem to all of this was Lee was an alcoholic by any and every definition. She was pleasant to be around or tolerable to be around before the beer started going down. 
but a few six packs in and that side of Lee where everyone is out to get her come shining through and very bright. And anyone within their right mind knew when it was time to part ways with Lee. Once you see her making that change, I can't imagine people wanting to stay in that. And for what I would consider a normal person, you would walk away as soon as you realize it. You'd be like, nope, not doing that. But Ty didn't do that. And maybe, you know, you put up with it for a little while. And maybe you made it a point to only be around Lee prior to the booze. But Ty stuck by Lee in the good times and in the bad times to a degree. For a while, the two were living inside of the motel that Ty had been a laundry maid for, but Lee wasn't pulling enough cash in, and what she was bringing in seemingly went straight to alcohol. It's said that Bush and Budweiser were Lee's favorite drinks of choice. It seems like she was just a beer drinker. I mean, she would drink liquor, but... It, push comes to shove, beer's cheaper, and Lee just gravitated to that. It was very rare that you would ever see Lee without a drink in her hand. And in the end of 1987, Ty turned to a friend from the church she had been attending, a place for her and Lee to stay. And this person agreed, but under one condition. Ty and Lee would sleep in separate beds. Their lifestyle would not be tolerated under this person's roof. The woman agreed, and but she reiterated the scripture that women were to be with men. And when she did so in front of Lee, it set something off. Lee knew the Bible, and she could recite scripture as well. But with her bad luck with men, she wasn't going to tolerate being told that she was only to be with a man because that's what the Bible said. And she loses it on Ty's friends. She says, quote, don't try and force me to be with a man. I was married to a man, and he beat me. I can't even talk about my father. That's why I am this way. Well, yes, she had shitty experiences with men, but the marriage was far from what she was telling other people. Lewis wasn't the one beating her. She was the one beating Lewis. And this is why her nine-week wedding dissolved in a sham. Well, obviously, obviously, this little outburst of Lee's was more than enough. And Ty's friend immediately asked them to leave at once. And they were... Back to having nowhere to stay. Ty was given a warning by this friend from church that it may be the better choice if she was to go one way and Lee was to go the other. She could see already this early on Ty's downfall if she kept following her would be Lee. But Ty was in love or so she thought. Ty loved when Lee called her Lee's wife. That's something she ate up. But instead of parting ways, like the advice given, Ty followed Lee from one cheap dirtbag motel to another. Sometimes they traded in the cost of the motels for staying in rundown barns or camping out in the woods. Whatever they had to do in order to stay together. Come March of 1987, Lee and Ty had mysteriously funded the down payment to an old Corsair trailer, you know, the kind of tow-behind campers, and they parked it at the Ocean Village Camper Resort in Ormond by the sea. This was a step up from the Fleabag motels and mildew-ridden barns they had been sleeping in. Bill and Cindy Copeland, they rented the space for Lee and Ty that was directly next door to theirs. But in true Lee fashion, one small thing turned into something big and the women were asked to leave. The night in question started off with a bang, literally. 
several shots rang out from their camping space along with a lot of loud country rock music. The others in the park had had enough. Uh, these women and their all night antics and it just got to be too much. And when shots were fired, it was straw that broke the camel's back. Lee and Ty were asked to leave the trailer park. What happened to their new to them trailer, no one seems to really know, which means that Lee and Ty were back to hopping from one motel to another. In December of 1987, an officer in Daytona cited Susan Blahovic for walking on the interstate and possessing a suspended driver's license. Over the next few months, Lee got a heavy handed and sent threatening letters to the circuit court clerk on January 11th and February 9th. The assumption is that she was wanting the ticket to be thrown out and it looked like the courts were honoring that ticket. Either way, I'm sure Lee would have found something to be angry with. On March 12th, 1989, Cami Green accused a Daytona bus driver of assaulting stating that she was pushed from the bus following an argument between Lee and the driver or Cammie and the driver. The city bus system knew Lee well. If she wasn't thumbing it to get from point A to point B, she was riding buses. And men bus drivers always caught Lee's extremely poor attitude. Sometimes for something so minor, it went completely unnoticed to everybody else on the bus to a made-up conversation that they had or put-downs that came from the driver. And this is all according to Lee. The women's drivers, though, they never had any issue with Lee riding in their route. So you could definitely see the pattern of, of hating men. The argument that Cammy or Lee was referring to happened when she and Ty were getting on near I-4 and 92. The driver knew the couple and made a comment along the lines that Ty looked good that day. Well, this sets off an easily jealous Lee, and she didn't like that he had made that statement, so she hauled off and punched him in the mouth, which his natural reaction turns to pushing her through the door and off the bus. On another occasion, there was a different driver Lee got into because the driver didn't drop the kneeler. And for those who don't know what that means, the kneeler lowers the front end of the bus from a 13.5 inch stance to an approximately nine inch step. This makes it easier on passengers climbing on and off the bus. For whatever reason that day, the driver didn't drop the nailer. This resulted in Lee calling him everything under the sun and sprinkling it with some pretty ugly racial slurs. It didn't take much for a man to set Lee off. The smallest thing, like not kneeling the bus, Lee's mind jumps to thinking that the man at that particular time that she's having the interaction with is trying to take from her what she felt she was owed as a human being. She would accuse them of picking on her, of bullying her because she was a sex worker, or because she was a gay female, or even because they didn't like the way she looked. Her borderline personality disorder would be set off, and most who knew Lee would say she would become, quote, meaner than a rattlesnake, end quote. July 23, 1988, Ty and her roommate, Susan Bohovic, were accused by their landlord of vandalizing their apartment. According to the landlord, they ripped out carpets and painted over their walls with a dark brown color, all without the approval from the landlord. And at the time, Ty was back to working at Casa de Mart motel. This is where Ty had met the landladies and they had, they were friends. And according to the landlord, it was only supposed to be Ty staying at the apartment, but Lee would be away for about a year and a half 
Therefore, Ty was in desperate need for a place to stay, and the landlord, she was already looking for a roommate to split rent with, so Ty, it was perfect. They could split the rent, and she wouldn't have to deal with Lee, because Lee's not supposed to be there. Well, Ty moves in on a Friday, and on Sunday, there's Lee at the door with a duffel bag of her belongings, and she moves in. She would leave after a day or two um, taking her stuff with her, but within hours to days later, she's back and there she is again. Sometimes Lee would stay away for a couple days um, and sometimes it was no more than just like the 12 hours of night and she'd be back. The landlord was told that Lee was leaving to go to work in Orlando with her pressure cleaning business so she believed that Lee was commuting back and forth. The landlord would the landlord would later testify that Lee was calm and easier to be around when she was sober. But when she started drinking, her behavior became more erratic and extremely extremely angry. Lee thought the relationship between her and Ty was solid. They loved each other, both willing to go to the end of the world for each other, or so she thought. If we were to get technical with alien sexual orientation, then we would label her as bisexual. She enjoyed having sex with men, but as far as like the emotional side of being in love and or in a relationship, she could only get that from a woman, or at least she could only get it from Ty. For Ty, who was a gay or is a gay woman, this is extremely frustrating. She knew Lee liked to sleep with men. I mean, her job meant that she went out and slept with four, five, six, maybe ten men in a day. So she wasn't stupid. She knew that's what it was like. But she was thinking that her and Lee would develop a deeper sexual connection than what they had. But within time, it seems as though Lee was doing the sex work to please that side of her. And then Ty, she would use her to have that emotional bond with. Because Lee never could trust a man in her life. And even her own brother took from her. Lee was robbed of the ability to connect to any man following her early life. Lee wasn't going to lose Ty, even if that meant that she would have to kill to keep her. Let me introduce you to Richard Charles Mallory. He was born October 18, 1938 in Florida. In 1957, Richard was sentenced to 10 years within a Maryland mental institution for the attempted rape of a woman, where he would move to Florida following his release. Those who knew Richard knew him as a loner, as a paranoid loner. He owned and operated an electronic repair store in Clearwater, Florida. But Richard also led a second life that many didn't know about. Richard would close up his shop, go on a couple-day binger of excessive booze and sex, more sex than anyone should handle, because Richard had a very insatiable desire for sex. He would hire sex workers, he would go to the strip clubs, he would divulge in some hardcore porn, none of which, even in combination, satisfied that for him. It is rumored that at one point Richard had a thing going on with a wife of one of the ambassadors. This caused him to become extremely paranoid about people watching him or following him. Anytime anyone mentioned the rumored ambassador's wife's name, Richard's paranoia would get the best of him. It was so bad that Richard was considering plastic surgery, similar to the same reasons of John Dillinger. It's to escape the life they're living, to escape the consequences coming their direction by simply making yourself look unrecognizable. Well, where John Dillinger had decided to completely change his face, Richard was convinced that a simple nose job would do the trick. 
Richard spent most of the shop's profits on sex acts from women. He would hire staff once he started getting behind in the repairs. Then once they were caught up, he'd let the staff go. By the time he was murdered, Richard was on the verge of bankruptcy in both his professional and personal life. His addiction to sex had reached a level that the only thing he worked for was even more sex with whoever he could find. Some of his favorite parts about having sex with women were how it made him feel powerful. It put him in control and it gave him an ability to be able to overpower them, guaranteeing him that he would get satisfaction after it was all said and done. This often meant that women he was with would be tied up or handcuffed. He'd bite them during the act. And if that wasn't enough, then he'd smack them around a little here and there. If the woman flaunted her good looks and desirable physique, those women were more likely to have that very overpowering, abusive sexual encounter with Richard that involved a lot of debasing and cruel treatment versus being easier on them if they weren't so vain. On December 3rd, 1989, the electronic repair shop was closed up. No one paid attention because it wasn't out of the ordinary that Richard wouldn't show up for work or open the store for days on end. Richard frequented the strip clubs within the area and a lot of the dancers they may not have took the time to remember his name, but if they saw him, they'd recognize him the moment they saw him. You know, the moment he walks through the door, they'd know exactly who he was. And if they were the lucky girl of the night to get themselves to dancing for him, it guaranteed a continuous cash flow for the whole visit. Still, not seeing him around didn't spark up concern from them either. No one actually cared until the police showed up to his store on December 3rd to notify him that they had found his car abandoned outside of Daytona, and then he's nowhere to be found. Well, four days prior, on November 30th, 1989, the skies were dark and stormy with the threat of severe weather coming in out of the Gulf. And Richard decided he was going to go on a bender and he was on his way to Daytona Beach and he was going to pack it full of sex and booze. But on his trip down, he ran into some traffic after a serious wreck resulted on the eastbound side of I-275. And with traffic being slower than a slug, he was getting antsy. He was already on his way there. He started partying. He was drinking some vodka and he was smoking a joint. And the more the alcohol took over his, the blood in his veins, the more he desired to find a chick to hook up with kicking off this party he had planned for the next few days. Once he got past the wreck, he was starting to make a little bit of headway, but the downpour was just raining down on top of him, and it would have slowed other people, but for him, he just kept on trucking. Well, a few miles past the wreck, he spotted 30-year-old female, medium build, dressed in some cut-off jean shorts, t-shirt, and a baseball cap. And he thought, you know what? No better way to get this party started than to pick her up. Lee wasn't any better off. She had started drinking earlier down in Fort Myers. Um, she was hustling for work and she and Ty had been in an argument over the phone just prior to her thumbing it. Her work landed her about $250 in her purse. And she was going to take that money and save the day and get her and Ty in a new apartment on Burley Avenue. Well, Richard passed by and he decides to pull up and back up and he picks her up. She's thinking Richard's going to get me a hell of a lot closer to Daytona than the, ver than the various rides she took north 
furthering the distance between her and Ty. If any of these two had an idea how their night was going to end, different choices may have been made. Once in the car, the two exchanged small pleasantries. Richard even asked if Lee minded that he smoke a joint while they drove, and Lee told him, have at it. But she wasn't going to partake in the fun. At this point in life, Lee looked at things differently and she would drink like a damn fish out of water. But when it came to drugs, she was adamant that she wasn't going to put them in her body anymore. Richard then offered her some of his vodka and the two started to relax and get friendly and chit chat with one another. Lee will later recall that she thought that Richard was kind of cute and he was funny. He was capable of making the very man-hating person that Lee was lower her guard. So, lower <clears throat> her guard. And it's usually so high up and tight when she's around a male. Richard knew that Lee wasn't thumbing it just because. He figured she was a sex worker down on her luck, and he, he wasn't a stranger picking up these women working the street and paying for what he wanted from them. But it was Lee who accosted him about paying for a little more fun with her. Many witnesses who had paid Lee for sex in the past all confirmed she was the one to bring up the talk of trading sex for money, and this encounter was no different. Richard was all too eager to have a little, and he paid her for it in exchange. Just off Highway 1, Richard pulls off to a stopping point where the car's hidden and not too much, and they get to talking and they're drinking. Well, Richard and Lee, they are talking, they're continuing to drink. It's getting into the very early morning hours when the conversation of rates begin. So the two, they talked and they drank and the conversation gets to Lee's rates. And Lee's rates were always the same, even up to her arrest. It was $100 for sex in a motel, $75 for sex in the woods, $40 for half and half and 30 for oil oral in the car. Once they agreed on the services and the money, they moved from where they were parked to another spot just off Highway 1 and found a more secluded spot uh, further down on I-95. Lee says later that Richard gave her the money for the agreed upon date first. Then the two of them opened up their car doors and Lee began stripping down. She would later say that the men would also be removing their clothes, but at this time, Richard wasn't taking his off. In the autopsy, Richard's zipper was down, but his belt and pants were up around his hips. Lee would claim during the trial that all Richard wanted was a blowjob. In hindsight, we know that his desire would have caused him to pay for far, far more to happen between him and Lee. The story goes one of two ways. Both ways are what Lee said about what happened between her and Richard. Richard Mallory raped me. Whereas he tied me to the steering wheel, then proceeded to vaginally and anally rape me for nearly two hours. Then after he was done, he put rubbing alcohol he had in a visine bottle in the bottom of my nose, my vagina, and anus. This was excruciatingly painful, more so in my ass, because he tore me up bad. I've never had sex like that. I never allowed exotic, weird stuff while hustled. Just clean stuff. That is an excerpt from the book Dear Dawn talking about what, her, what happened between Richard and her. In the book Monster, I have another excerpt, and these two stories kind of line up and kind of don't. Hookers are the same as cab drivers. You get good fares and bad fares. Some guys are okay and give respect. Others treat you like shit. Sometimes you get paid after the John. But often the Johns complain. 
straight hose strip around the world, maybe a blowjob. I ain't never been a social worker. Don't give green stamps. They want to fuck. They pay me, okay? They fuck up my head, rain on my parade. They got what come to them. Mallory, he wanted to cuff me and rape me, you know, that's what did it for me. That cancer-ridden fucking judge said I killed him for money. <laughs> I've been with hundreds of men who had money. I only killed seven. So what does that tell you? The cops knew I killed Mallory. I left prints everywhere. They just covered it up. It was his choice. Killing Mallory was nothing to me. I was cold and wet, just trying to hitch a ride, and this guy goes past, stops, and comes back. He was okay at first. He had a bottle of vodka, and then we stopped for beers at a gas station, and he got Doritos and stuff. Sure, he just chatted. He was running late because of the traffic, and then we talk about sex. That's all they fucking want. I don't recall the time, but maybe around 3 a.m. we crossed the river towards Daytona Beach. He pulled off the road and up a track and into woods, where we in the front seats, I stripped. We drank more beer, smoked, and kissed for a while. Just stuff. He was limp and he got pissed with me. He hit me. Later, I gave him a blowjob and then he went fucking crazy, like a crazy man. Slapped me some and held me down. He was going to rape me. I am telling you, like I told the judge, he was raping me. There are thousands of guys and women out there who say they gave me a ride and we got on just fine, you know. They gave me, they gave me not hassle. I'm a good person inside, but when I get drunk, I just don't know. I was always short of money, so I guess sometimes I brought up sex. Mallory wanted to fuck straight off. He was a mean motherfucker with a dirty mouth. He got drunk, and it was a physical situation. So I popped him and watched the man die. I shot Mallory in his right arm. Didn't name nothing. Just shot him maybe three or four times right there. He begged for help, but I watched him die. Sure, I robbed him. So what? Another version of the story goes that Mallory <laughs> rolled on top of Lee. And you would think that even though they were both in a drunken haze, that he would have been capable to see the change that goes over Lee. And it takes over her entire body. She goes from a woman wanting, you know, a good time and a quick dollar for exchange to a woman avenging all the wrongs in her life that came her way via men. In her mind, this was not, no longer a consensual situation. The way Lee was looking at this was he was going to take from her all that he wanted and she wasn't going to let it happen yet again. No, this time she was going to stand up for herself. Mallory managed to roll on her again after they went from kissing and mashing their bodies together to hitting one another. Mallory looking to get what he paid for and Lee trying to keep herself from being the victim in her mind. What exactly happened in that spot just off I-95, the events that occurred leaving Richard dead from multiple gunshot wounds and Lee with her belongings thrown over her shoulder, making her way back to Tyree with a few more dollars than she had before Richard stopped, reversed, also, Lee, who had been standing with her thumbs stuck up in the air, could crawl in. Mallory suffered a wound to his left arm. It was through and through. The bullet lodged into his ribs. Two more slugs left him with a wound in both his left and right chest. A devastating wound. A deadly wound. Another shot entered in the left side of his neck, just above his collarbone. With both lungs now collapsed and blood pouring from each of the wounds, there was nothing left for Mallory but to die slowly and painfully. It's estimated that Lee stood there and watched him struggle to pull air into his body for 10 minutes. 
Mallory's Cadillac was found abandoned near John Anderson Drive in Ormond Beach, just a short distance from where Lee and Ty were staying. Tyria had no idea what it meant for her future when Lee walked into the Zodiac bar that fateful day in 1986. She thought she had found someone to love her, care for her, someone to build a life with. What she found was a person who made cancer look like a fun ride. Every part of Ty's life that Lee touched withered and died. Ty lost friends along the way, and Lee isolated Ty so much that she depending on no one else but Lee for survival. What Ty found in Lee wasn't love at first sight. It was something far more sinister than she could have ever imagined. Lee's desire to find someone to love and to love her fell flat with each and every guy she settled on, but something inside of Tyria Moore stood out to Lee as someone that was capable of loving her. While by all definitions Lee was bisexual, it would be because Lee not associating love with sex, but love with a deeper emotional bond. She still liked sleeping with men, from hints here and there, and sleeping with Ty didn't offer that level of satisfaction for Lee. But the emotional bond that formed between each of these women was enough for Lee to move mountains to hold on to, even if that meant that she had to kill to have it. Were Richard's intentions skewing to raping her in order to satisfy an insatiable sex drive? Was Lee acting in self-defense, and if so, did it trigger a level of PTSD like she had never seen before, leaving Lee to fight back against those who she feared of raping her the only way she knew how, ending with her killing six additional men. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight, a case like no other with a serial killer aptly dubbed Monster. This case is like no one I've ever covered on TTCL, especially having the research material that came straight from the killer's pen. This week's recommended reading goes out to Monster by Aileen Warnos with Christopher Barry D. The true crime book was published in August of 2004, two years after the multiple death sentences were carried out and Aileen died by lethal injection. This book is great for a look at the whole picture of Aileen's case from the very beginning up from the moment she was born. Others offer great in-depth research on the events of the crime or crimes and others give you the backstory before a person turned from seemingly normal to full-blown killer. Next week, we will dive deeper into the victims of Aileen Warnos and how it all secured her a spot on Florida's death row. Remember to review, recommend, or like if you're listening on YouTube. All are great ways to support the show, making sure that other nerds like yourself find TTCL. As always, I leave you with one last line. Letting go of toxic people is an act of self-care. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>